0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: CTN CIO Talk Network is brought to you by Redmain and BlackBerry. Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjoe Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sunjoe Gall.
2: Hello, and uh, welcome to this segment on CTN. To learn more, please visit CIOtalknetwork.com. And our topic for today is using uncertainty as an advantage. And our guest for today's show is Vince Kellen, who is the CIO at the University of California, San Diego. Hi, Vince. How are you? Good. Real good. All right, good, good. So this, this topic, the reason we picked up, while we know that we may be coming out of, say, a recession or maybe the things look up, but frankly, the uncertainty is not just about when things are down. They are simply because the volatility is there, and market conditions are changing, you know, fundamental, socioeconomic, geopolitical, you name it, all of those things are there and there are so many other things that could impact a business. So when we do face such uncertainty, the knee-jerk reaction could be, is we, you know, hunker down. But I guess there could be another view where this could be a point of reflection and perhaps we change or, or rather transform this uncertainty into essentially um, an opportunity to make a difference, to use it as an advantage. So, so to that, the first step is how do we define uncertainty for an organization? Because as an individual, it could be the fear of the unknown. But when you're talking the organizational concept, Do we see this as something which is noticeable and measurable, and we know it's not in our best interest? That's what we call uncertainty?
3: Well, yeah, I think that you can actually define uncertainty in very clear terms. And the way I would describe it for corporate competitiveness, and quite frankly, it's not that much different for individuals, too, is in the following way. One, who your competitors are are unknown, meaning there are new competitors that you had never seen, and there might be more lurking, so you have less insight into who are the competitors. So, uh, an uncertainty about who you're actually competing against is an element of it. Uh, who your partners are might be uh, changing significantly, and some partners might have disappeared, and there might be new partners coming out, and others you haven't heard of. That becomes a level of uncertainty. The, whether the partner is a partner or is going to be a competitor or vice versa can be unclear. So the stability of the other people you're dealing with adds to the uncertainty. And then certainly among the customers in the market, uh, if it looks like that uh, the markets are shifting quickly, the market is growing really fast or it's shrinking really fast, uh, it's also not clear who your customers are. And in the most uh, uncertain environments, all of those are in flux. And an example of that is the birth of the Internet uh, as a commercial entity, which created a whole bunch of new players, threats of disintermediation, uh, you know, people competing in new ways they hadn't realized before. There was a lot of uncertainty at the early stages of the Internet.
2: Now, what you just mentioned about, of course, the outside uh, factors which might cause uncertainty, that's understandable. When you mentioned about partners changing or you know, some of the internal uh, ecosystem-based changes, would you call that change as driving uncertainty or change as uncertainty? Because that's something business as usual, right? We cannot think status quo anyways. So that doesn't mean well, that we are in an uncertain environment all the time.
3: Yeah, I mean, change is a part of uncertainty, but the features of the landscape,
2: if the features, meaning competitors,
3: partners, suppliers, employees, and customers, are also uncertain to you, meaning you don't know who they are, you don't know if they're going to change, uh, that becomes another level of uncertainty. Uh, In a a field of battle, for example, if if soldiers uh, land in a particular environment and they're starting to deal with local villagers, there could be complete uncertainty if the the local villager is a friend or foe, and that represents uncertainty. There might be a complete no understanding of where the, the enemy combatants are. That creates another level of uncertainty. So in many ways, I think you can look at it in that way.
2: Now, the fact if there was, say, a, a state, a snapshot of the environment, we can say, okay, let's, we know what it is about. Maybe we do some investigation, figure out how, how ugly this beast is and accordingly deal with it. But then even those factors are changing all along. So it's not making our job or our existence any easier. So what, what is supposed, someone supposed to do as an individual or even as an organization?
3: Well, I think uh, responding to uncertainty is now the critical thing,
2: Uh, and
3: uncertainty represents complexity, right? And so organizations sometimes try to shun the complexity and say, I have to slow all this down so that we don't get overrun, but another response organizations can take is how do I absorb that complexity and move internally even quicker and change us up internally even quicker? to absorb and potentially take advantage of, or at least not be so badly harmed by that uncertainty. So you can think of this, we can either absorb the uncertainty or or shun the uncertainty. Both may be legitimate strategies, but as you can see, I'm kind of in favor of the, let's try to absorb the uncertainty uh, versus just hunker down and try to survive it.
2: So by absorbing, do you think we are just almost becoming a, a sprinter who's trying to now add five pounds or weight and the person will have to run at the same speed, but it'll become tougher for them? So is that is that embracing really a good idea or you say you don't have a choice, so, so do whatever you else you can, but perhaps this is the best choice available?
3: Um, I, no, I think we all organizations are trying to be nimble, fast and quick at all costs and to be able to adjust to their markets. Uh, quickly. And so I don't think it's much of an option anymore these days to say let's try to hunker down. Now there might be some organizations that are extremely well positioned in the market that have a lot of durability and strength to kind of go through a period. But as we're seeing more and more of those organizations are, are you know run into trouble over time.
2: And how do you think we can prevent this to become an ego trip? Because there's some people who would say, no matter, bring it on, I'll deal with it versus being sane and say, you know what, if this is a tsunami, I'm not going to face it directly because I know I cannot control it or this is beyond me.
3: Um, Well, that's a really good question. I don't know if you can ever, for the leaders in question, separate their own ambitions from what's going on around them. I think if it becomes too much of an ego trip and the company and its leaders start to not listen to the information, then it becomes disastrous. So I think the first thing we have to do in uncertainty is be very aggressive consumers of information because the thing that makes the uncertainty go away is more information. Uh, as the organization gets very savvy about sensing its environment and knowing what the competitors and customers are doing and the suppliers, etc., with more competitive intelligence and analytics, the more it feels less uh, confused by it. So information is critical to piercing through the uncertainty.
2: And in your view, when we are, supposed dealing with any such environment where the uncertainty exists, would there be a threshold above which you'd say, you know what, don't mess with it, and below that you stay nimble or at least still try to, you know, move around and nudge and push and get your way through?
3: Uh, you know, I think it's... In the business world, it's hard to imagine a situation so chaotic that um, inaction is superior, and and so and and it might be from a probability standpoint, inaction and action might be roughly equivalent. For example, let's imagine you're in a room uh, that's complete; lights are on completely, and there is a perfectly square floor of white and black squares. And there's another. You're in one corner of the room. And in an absolute other corner of the room is another person. And there is a sound that chimes every two seconds. And whenever that sound chimes, each of you has to take exactly one step in any direction at any square you want, but it has to be a contingent square. And in the exact dead center of the room is a pile of gold. Now, in that environment, what strategy is the winning strategy? Well, there isn't really any winning strategy because everything is completely visible. The rules are simple. And if you follow the rules out, either both of you will arrive at the pile of gold at exactly the same time or one, just slightly one step ahead. Not a very interesting game. So at, at the level of complete stasis, there's practically nothing to do except mildly attend to the environment and adjust where needed. So it's almost complete stasis. At the other end of the spectrum, imagine you're in that same room. It's completely dark. You can't hear anything. You and, the, and, the, and your opponent are both moving. The money that you're going after is moving, and there is no way to know where anything is until you finally touch it. That's complete chaos. And in complete chaos, any action is equal to any other action, whether it be standstill or do something. It is hard in the business world to find situations of utter chaos. Almost everything, it's almost like life itself avoids chaos and avoids complete stability. It wants something in the middle. So what we're really talking about in businesses are stages of complexity or uncertainty that might be a little bit too hard for organizations to handle, but not so bad that you've got to hunker down. And I'll give you an example. Kodak, uh, at the point of the Internet, was kind of in hunker-down status quo mode versus aggressively understanding the Internet and digital photography, and that has killed them. Uh, so that was a case of hunkering down. The danger of hunkering down, if you hunker down wait for the clouds to clear, the clouds may clear, but the ground underneath you may be gone, and you may be looking at the edge of a cliff about to fall over. So standing still, even in the most complex of situations, might not be good. In addition, if you have agility and you feel your agility is superior to your opponent's agility, any movement is likely to be better, even if it's not perfect, because you'll probably have a better ability to react to the situation and adjust. And I can get into that probably a little bit later here, talk about why that is. So I actually think there's very precious few situations in business where you just hunker down and wait. I think you always have to be designing action.
2: And should we uh, take into an account where any organization which has been existing and hopefully thriving or at least in a stable state must have done something in the self-preservation at different times and would have would have been fortifying itself. And so any uncertainty comes would really not buckle it 100%. It will um, have something.
3: I'm going to quibble with that. I think most organizations that become great were very good in the early stage in an uncertain situation and took advantage of it. That became uh, sort of a a continued uh, income stream and rent to them that enabled them to accumulate cash that now enables them to stand still. But that's not how they got there. They got there probably by being a, a, a timely mover with an appropriate market response at a time of some confusion. And I think organizations lose sight of that and and have a hard time getting back into the state that got them there.
2: Would you say that what you just said, in fact, there's a book uh, that says what got you here would not get you there, but that's for an individual. But do you think that's also true with an organization where the DNA, which essentially got them moving from from a state of zero, if you will, brought them to a critical mass, but then the style of operations or the thinking would not really be exactly the same. And that would go, uh, actually, that would be true for how they handled uncertainty in the past versus now in stage two or level two.
3: Yeah, I think at stage two, they, they, their DNA has changed a little bit and they are no longer what they were. And so I agree with that completely. What got you here won't get you to the next thing. And Or the other thing is to, to consider is an organization that achieves a good, good continuity and is, is, is now survivable, uh, they tend to have what I call mental inertia. They view things a certain way. And that mental inertia sometimes prevents them from seeing the next opportunity. And so the organization has to figure out how do I get a new look on things? How do I stay vibrant and change things into uh, into this uncertain future? So I agree completely. That which got you here may not get you there at all.
2: Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back and talk about some of the ways we can actually take advantage of uncertainty. So since so far in the first segment we spoke about how it can paralyze some people, or they could just keep moving forward, but that is still. Uh, with a say a survival mindset, but here we are talking about literally using it as a prop for you to go to the next level so it doesn't buckle you down, in fact, becomes the catalyst for your growth. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook,
1: post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: Patient-centered care requires a connected enterprise. Are you ready? If you're looking to scale your healthcare IT efforts, visit redmain.com forward slash health today. Whether it's to connect data from multiple partner solutions or developing software for unique needs, Redmain can help. To find out how Redmain can help your company deliver on the patient centered care promise, visit redmain.com forward slash health or call 773 693 3919. Visit today.
3: America Business Network The bottom line in business
1: You are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoy Gall To learn more about our program please visit ciotalknetwork.com Now back to the show
2: Welcome back So uh, Vince when we are looking at well the, the what we discussed in the first segment, that perhaps was where we were trying to just stabilize where things were not going right. But now we're talking about we become the heroes, look at uncertainty looming, or we see it is already here and we see it that we are above the uncertainty and we're gonna actually capitalize on it. That's not really seen or at least experienced by many organizations. At least I've not seen. Maybe you'll have some examples. So what type of mindset, what type of culture, what type of approach that someone could even take to to feel that they're above uncertainty and totally nail it?
3: Um I think the best competitor if you look at sports, some of the best competitors are are really good at that. There was a I forget who the cyclist was, but he had a great quote. Most people Uh, hope for an opening and go. He said, I go and hope for an opening. And I think that summarizes it. Uh, If you feel you have the agility to respond to kind of an unpredictable sequence of events, you're not so much worried about, you know, is there an opening or not, or is there a time to do this? Um, you, You feel like you have the skills and the capability. So, yes, I do think in sport there are people who are absolutely there. Uh, from time to time, I think there are companies that get on a roll. I think uh, Apple, in its second resurgence in the early stage, got on that roll of howing. You know, how can they continue to stay ahead of the market and introduce their own uncertainty to 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 an extent, and then take advantage of it. Uh, so there are some examples of that. Uh, I agree with you. It's not common. I think the, the vast majority of people in, 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 are the human nature response is to let's let's hold. It's, I'm not certain about this.
2: So even if and you got a great example here for an individual, but then since we talk about organization, is is amalgamation of different personalities, backgrounds, and 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 level of uh, resilience, if you will, right? As as an individual or even as a group. So. Maybe one person would say, go, but the other people could say, this is reckless. This is like firing and then aiming. We might be doomed. I'm not saying the person has a negative attitude. They may be right in their own way, but do you think you can have a consensus to go ahead, as you said, go move forward and then find an opening as a team, as a leadership or team as an organization?
3: There are some smaller teams that can build a consensus quick, but in a large, complex organization, that will be impossible. And maybe that's not the point. The point really is can the executive team, which has to steer the organization, come to its own consensus? Uh, And it's extremely important for the organization to know how long it's going to take them to come to a decision. That is a part of the agility of the enterprise, is the decision making agility. In fact, that's the quintessential element of the agility, is the decision making agility. And each CEO has to decide if their decision-making process is matching the tempo of the market, either now or anticipated. And if not, that executive and the executive team got to get on it and figure out how do we get our decision-making process, processes there. Uh, to wait for consensus from everybody might be foolish, and here's why. There are people in the organization who might not be good at this complexity thing, and... But they will potentially take comfort in a strong direction around a trusted leadership group. So the quicker the leadership group can establish the direction and communicate, uh, there's always parts of the organization who respect that and actually uh, seek it um, because it gives them some guidelines for, okay, we know where we're going now. I may not agree with it, but at least I know where we're going. Let's Let's go to work.
2: What you just mentioned could also be seen in direct contrast with the current prevailing approaches that your decision-making should be fast, however, should be data-driven versus gut. But if you were to go with that approach, then nobody would ever agree to say, okay, let's jump in and then we'll figure out if there's an opening. Uh,
3: Not entirely true because even in an uncertain situation, you do want to collect data. Just as a cyclist who's going to... Go and hope for an opening. As soon as they go, they're immediately sensing and they're, uh, they're using data to adjust as they go and they're relying on their superior agility and timing to take advantage of that. So this is never done without data. Um, in fact, the better you are at absorbing data into your decision, the more agile you're going to be. Uh, now, There's a threshold for which you say, okay, we cannot collect any more data because we're wasting time based on the tempo of the market. We're going to have to make a decision as best we can. An imperfect decision done quickly with another decision coming right after it is far better than a perfect decision way too late. So the agility to make subsequent decisions is more important than hesitancy around the first decision. So, if, no. if, the speed of, if the speed of the decision making process is superior, you don't necessarily have to sweat, were you perfect in your first decision? Because you can adjust your approach based upon what you're seeing from the market very quickly.
2: You know, in any environment, whether individual or organization, we feel the FUD factor, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We, are, we don't feel we know enough about, or that's an uncharted territory. And when you mention about decision making and that is better be data driven for it to be going in the right direction that is dependent on whether you were given collecting that data because sometimes the the ecosystem the way it moves or sometimes the the different factors that change we are not even in that we are not even collecting data in that direction so let alone making decision based on it so do you, i mean at the time when you start seeing that change is when you say you know what this is some an area which we should even explore start collecting data so over time, we'll get better at decision making. So, is it not like a catch, like a catch twenty-two?
3: Well, it is a catch twenty-two. But if you don't have the data collection capability, it's silly to make decisions uh, because you may be completely flying blind. Uh, and if you make decisions on gut, that's untethered from reality at this point, meaning actual data. Um, you're going to run into a situation where your decision will be completely inadequate. So I think it, to agility assumes you have decision-making agility and information collection capability for the, for that agility to go hand-in-hand. A hand. Uh, Shortstop does not go blind into a ball based on gut.
2: Based on whatever you've seen in terms of organization, and you've been around the block, so you know how companies operate and have been operating and how they're trying to morph. Do you think they have the chops to deal with uncertainty as we stand today?
3: Um, I think most organizations still very much struggle with it. Others have been able to, to, to get through it. I think time boxing, decision-making, or putting time constructs around things uh, is always a good technique. Um, but it, it is a, it, it's endemic to human nature. Human, or, you know, the, the vast majority of humans, when faced with uncertainty, go hide under a tree. Right. Uh, unfortunately, the business world doesn't, doesn't offer sanctuary uh, for, for most organizations. So I think most organizations still struggle with it. I think in today's information age uh, and the way it's going in the future, especially with all the analytical techniques and, and algorithms we have to automatically process things, more organizations are going to be in a better position. And I'll put Google in that category. Because in a way, uh, a whole lot of decision making for Google is completely automated via their algorithms within all of their their platforms, uh, and that's a very critical piece. So, what the executives now have to manage is the next layer of decision making, which is one step removed from the little, from the initial. In the future, there might be another level of algorithms that help augment the decision making for organizations, helping to automate that. So, to me, it's it's. I think you're going to see most organizations struggle, but some continuing to push the envelope on that decision-making capability.
2: So on the tactical level, we know we do this DR, disaster recovery or business continuity type planning. Do you think we have a corresponding readiness check and planning that organizations have started doing to see whether when the uncertainty really looms, will we be ready to deal with it?
3: No, that doesn't really exist in most organizations, and part of the reason it doesn't exist in most organizations is the, the continuity in many organizations has really taken a hit in the last two decades, where management teams turn over far too quickly, companies come and die far too quickly, so there's never enough time to get to what I call the meta-issues, Instead, it it tends to be an immediate, uh, short-term focus, which while can build some measure of agility, it might prevent you from dealing with longer-term uncertainty. Uh, So, no, I don't think we've been able to build organizations that could get to that level of maturity. Uh, There are a couple organizations that do that you know that I've worked with in the past. uh, Certainly, a company I was with early. Uh, in, the 90, in, the, in the late 90s uh, was very adept at making sure we were trying to make decisions in a timely fashion and kind of pushing the pace on the decision-making. Um, but most organizations do not. They, we still struggle with that.
2: Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back after these messages. And let's see if an organization can actually try to be opportunistic when facing uncertainty. Means whatever, is there, as, as of course... Um, you know, you mentioned about finding an opening, or maybe jump in and find an opening. But then, is it not also, on the other hand, advised? Like, you know, it's an age-old advice that if you have some situation like that, do what you know best, versus trying to chase something entirely new which you have nothing about. So, what, what, as a, if I look at hindsight, twenty twenty, what is a better approach, or what is a proven approach when an organization faces uncertainty? So, please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back.
0: or call 773-693-3919 visit today
3: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice
1: america business network you are listening to ctn cio talk network with Sunjo joe gall now back to the
2: show Welcome back. So, uh, Vince, we have always been taught that when you are having an issue or, or uncertain environment, basically get close to your basics. What you know best, what your DNA tells you to do, what your gut tells you to do, don't mess around, don't chase those uncharted territories. But then... If we do that, then we move away from the opportunistic approach to say, you know what, whatever will get us through is what we try. Or for that matter, take that very opportunistic approach to doing whatever works. Drop all strategy, all that you thought of all this while when you have an uncertainty. Which school of thought that you think as an experience has worked well for you or anyone else you know? I would,
3: you know, that's a very good question, and I would argue that neither approach is ideal, because in planning for the future, it's never an either-or. It's a combination of things, and so the way I would prefer to describe it is there are time horizons to consider, and then there are factors that are influencing the environment across that time horizon. Now, let's take one factor in question, demographic trends. Demographic trends are a very slow-moving factor. They operate in 20-, 30-year cycles. Uh, in the retail world, we pay attention to those. We know those. Certainly in higher education my world, we know those. We know when a lot of high school kids will become to college and when they're not. Once you, get a, get, you start to understand all of the slower-moving factors, especially the larger ones that shape the environment, in the future, you can then start to work on the, on the closer-in ones. And so I think the better way to think about it is how much knowledge can the organization absorb about all the factors that affect it, which ones are slow-moving, which ones are very fast. Now, that said, it is absolutely clear it is always better to go with your strength than go with your weakness unless you've determined that going with your weakness will kill you as a company. And that's where you think about, okay, my DNA tells me and my strength tells me we've got to be this. But in the future, we've got to be something else. And we'll go back to uh, the case of Kodak. Uh, and, and in that era, I was actually dealing with a paper manufacturer that was faced with a similar question. What is our future? Our DNA is around paper manufacturing, but our future might be around emulsion manufacturing. And they couldn't make the shift, even though they knew intellectually that's where the future was going to be. So, yes, you want to go with your strength, but you always want to be skeptical, looking for information to say, when do I need to change my strength? And I think that's the number one challenge for organizations. How do they evolve their strength? And I'm going to criticize Apple here a little bit. Apple has a tremendous strength, I think, in a couple dimensions. The first one is constructing a user experience that works in many different uh, potential context, and in some cases, industries. And then they have had, historically, a supply chain expertise, how to handle a supply chain to do this uh, in that environment. Well, that those two capabilities have created a stream of products for which now the market is catching up. At some point, there's going to have to be a different capability upon which uh, Apple is going to need to compete. I think the analysts have all been watching this and wondering what that is, uh, we will see in the future. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's staying with your strength, but knowing when not to stay with your strength is, is the actual uh, uh, way to do it. And I want to talk a little bit, and we can, we can go to the next question, but I'm going to talk about OODA loops at some point here and how organizations can build a methodology to think about this properly
2: in your response, you essentially almost refer to creative destruction, means what you're doing today. You annihilate that, and then you go ahead and re, re, um, redefine yourself or you find yourself again. That's one thing. Another is I'm, I'm coming back to that opportunistic approach. So you might have one business or one way you run it, but just because you have an uncertainty – do we temporarily drop what we used to do and what we are proud of or what we feel is the most stable approach and just go scramble so that you can get by through that uncertainty? Is that a sin?
3: No, that's absolutely not a sin. It may be a necessity. Um, but the superior approach would be to have a little bit more foresight on the, the, the what I call the bigger forces in your market and your core capabilities that have to evolve and somehow try to aim them at a new market opportunity. Uh, Large organizations need time, and yes, you do have to do those short-term things, but sooner or later you have to figure out how your core capabilities will evolve over time and how they'll be brought to bear on market opportunities. So it's it's not an either or again, it's a both-and. You may have to quickly scramble just to get something out. Uh, In fact, a scrambling technique like that might be nothing more than we need to learn information about whether we can or should take advantage of this opportunity. And so that gives me now an excuse to talk about OODA loops, uh, which are the way of thinking about decision-making and action uh, as four stages. The first stage is observing the scene, and we're thinking of it as collecting intelligence and information. The second stage of this is orienting, meaning who are we as an organization, what, is our, what are our capabilities and our DNA, uh, how does this information cause me to think about that in a different way, and then how does that influence my decision? And the second stage is decision-making. How can I get the organization through the decision-making and the, the minimum amount of consensus building I need to get this to go? And then the last stage is, how do I turn this decision into action, pure and simple, and execute something in the market? Think of those as four discrete stages. Observe, orient, decide, act. The way organizations can compete in uncertainty is ensure that their OODA loops, the speed of that OODA loop, is superior to the opponent, and the accuracy of both the information collection and the action is superior than the the opponent. So think of it as having faster, high-fidelity OODA loops. If you have that capability, you can go into the market opportunistically with a partial uh, commitment or even a full commitment in a very small way, uh, somewhat uncertain and somewhat going uncut, knowing that you're going to collect information, monitor what the competitors are doing quickly, and then adjust as you go. And so the person who has superior OODA loop capability can come into a market and create their own chaos, instigate chaos that others have to respond, and thus start to control the environment uh, in their favor and I think that's a big part of competition is how to get uh, the ability to uh, in a sense take advantage of the uncertainty you in fact create
2: One thing which I saw in some of the responses which you gave and you, you, you spoke or referred to competition. One approach or one question that comes up that should our existence be always in comparison to competitor that we always keep looking behind and see how fast am I running against others or is this the fastest I can run? When it comes to uncertainty, whether dealing with it and then bouncing back and running again and building capability, should we be really caring about what the competition is doing? And yes, we have to make sure we are the first or we are running the fastest, but if we spend too much time on what they're doing, we are essentially forsaking our original thinking or there is a risk. Well, you
3: you, you bring up a good point. We do have to certainly pay attention to our competitors, but we also can't over-fixate on them. But I will say this. It's not the competitor you know that kills you. It's a competitor you never saw coming. Um, and, for example, uh, Google, with its uh, search engine capability, has decimated the uh, newspaper business and the publishing business. And, uh, you know, at the start of the Internet, I highly doubt that there were many magazines worried about Google. They did not see that competitor. You know, after 9-11, when the airline industry took a big hit and the travel in, environment sort of dropped in terms of uh, 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 revenues, a lot of people decided to spend their money at home, and Home Depot won. Now, you don't normally think of Home Depot and even Dis- uh, 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 places like Home Depot as in competition with a place like Disney. But if you're a Disney that's reliant on air travel for the survival uh, and for the next five to eight years, it looks like you're going to be losing share of wallet to a competitor not in your market space. That's a problem. And so how you conceptualize what is a competitor matters greatly for the firm and how to take advantage of, the, of their markets. So, yeah, you can't overfixate on the, on the competitors, um, but you also can't, you got to keep an eye out for the competitor. You, you, you don't know where they're coming
2: from. Now let's talk about the capability building. So yeah, you may be opportunist or you feel fundamentally looking at data or whatever else, you figure out that, okay, this is the direction we have to go. The the key challenge always has been lack of resources or doing more with less or more with nothing. And in such an environment, when we have to do something and we want to build the skills and capabilities of the people, of the partner and all that, some investment is needed. While, yes, at the leadership level, you are talking that we have to do something about it, do you think money somehow magically appears? Or you have to still fight that battle with the board or whosoever else because you do not have a business case because you have nothing to back it on with. Means you're just guessing where the advantages are going to come from and you're rolling dice. Do you think money is best spent there, especially when it's uncertain environment?
3: You know, that's a really good point and question. Um, In a large corporate setting, um, there's there's no question there's more conservatism around what could be speculative. But if you also look at the startup market, all the startup companies, there's a good reason for corporations to be hesitant because, in a way, the startup community, they're trying out those experiments. So what you're seeing, especially in the technology sector, is a bit of a steady-state environment between very large corporate uh, IT companies continually buying startups. So you can think of it as uh, the gardener is going to the garden and picking the best flowers uh, that that are available at that point in time and ignoring the rest. Another way to look at it is the corporation is outsourcing their uncertainty management to the startup community and using acquisition as a way of of maybe moving a little quicker without taking huge risks. Thus, it's now the venture capitalists who come in who are taking the risk in the market. And I think that's a a really interesting, nice combination because more conservative corporation doesn't have to take the risk, just tends to have the cash to go buy what looks to be promising versus investing in something totally speculative. Uh, And so I think that's what you're seeing in the market is corporations deciding to outsource, in a sense, their uncertainty management. Uh, to uh, trying to in, incorporate uh, the, the acquisition of either IT or, or new startup companies.
2: Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And when we are going to do anything with respect to um, you know, changing or sh- turning around the ship or dealing with uncertainty, we got to be able to figure out not only what's happening in Ivory Tower as the leaders but also who's going to do the job, which is people, and they themselves are not in perhaps in the right state of mind because they can feel the uncertainty. They could even see as a potential job loss looming or some other form of environmental issues which will prevent them from being able to contribute even. Do we realistically feel that they could be sitting there contributing towards innovation and ideation and help you take advantage of the situation in an uncertain environment, let alone just be able to deal with it. How do we deal with people's side when it comes to uncertainty? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
3: the boardroom to you
1: voice america business network you are listening to ctn cio talk network with sun gall to learn more about our program please visit ciotalknetwork.com now back to the show
2: Welcome back. So, uh, Vince, when we see Ivory tower leaders talking among themselves, totally understand they have a higher emotional intelligence, perhaps even higher IQ, i not sure. But regardless, they have a better handle on the problem because they are the ones who are seeing it first, tackling it first. When you want to get it executed means get the people involved, get them to tell, okay, what do they see in the marketplace, et cetera, and not just the outside consultants, and then actually execute it, take advantage of the situation in such an uncertain environment. Do you think we have our people always in the ready go?
3: Not all people are, are the best at dealing with uncertainty, and I think we have to recognize that. And I think you're absolutely right that uh, many top executives have, have been able to absorb or deal with uncertainty better than others. So I think we got to recognize that, <clears throat> and two, I think um, we then have to say, okay, there's some individuals who have a harder time understanding uncertainty, and that's okay. Now I can't have those people in the position of trying to design the change that we need to have done. So I have to carve out uh, sort of a, a bifurcation of the organization between at least a small part of the organization that can deal with the future, sort of think about the future, and plan for the future. Um, while still keeping the other employees well engaged. Uh, So I think we have to break apart the audience a little bit.
2: So when it comes to the people, we totally understand. And of course, that's going to be work in progress. Now, these guys are still getting paid by the organization, so they may listen to you and maybe you'll find some people who are willing to do this ideation and innovation. Talking about partners, yes, it's great to have good partners, but when times are tough, everyone has to fend for their own existence. Do you think you will be able to get them along and work in the way you want to experiment because they may have a different direction, they may have to do their own creative destruction to uh, basically find themselves again? With all of that happening, would everything not just come down crashing or do you think there's a way to preserve this?
3: Oh, I think there's definitely a way to preserve it and that's the leadership challenge. Um, the, The leaders have to inspire those around them to rally to the cause of the change, knowing that there's differences in abilities. One technique I often use is I certainly know some people uh, are more resistant to change, and they're also, but they're also very good about criticizing the change and finding everything that could go wrong with it. And then there's another group of people that tend to be very good at thinking about the change and designing it. So I get both people in the room and I say, I need you both desperately, right? And I tell the folks who are the critics of change, I call them scrubbing bubbles, and they get a laugh at it. And I say, you know, if I put you in a room and I say, let's go design change, what will happen? Nothing. You'll get nothing out of it except a list of why no thing could ever happen. They laugh. And I go, the sunshine people who are the ideas and the futurists. And I say, if I put you in the position of criticizing what you've created, I'll get more uh, waxing on about what we can do in the future. So what I need is I need both of you to work together. We're going to do it this way. I need the sunshine people to dream up these plans. And then we're going to give them to the scrubbing bubbles. You guys have to criticize them real quickly. I'm going to send it back to these sunshine folks, and they're going to figure out how to improve their plan. While we may not all agree, at least I'll get you all engaged in this, and we've got to do this fairly quickly. So the leaders have to find a way to inspire people based upon their differences to contribute in the way they can to the change. With partners who may have divergent interests, that gets a little trickier, but I think a good leader is going to find some commonality that will inspire people. And I agree with you completely. If you can't inspire enough people around the change, you cannot execute the change.
2: See, and then what you just mentioned is still people and yes, partners are also people. I'm talking about external partners, not the ones who may be your internal business unit uh, leaders or, or people who you're trying to partner with as an organization. I'm talking about a larger ecosystem which we exist in.
3: Yeah, but an external partner is made up of people, and in some cases, we tend to rely on those external partners as if they're our own people anyway sometimes, so and it's just a shorter time frame, and it comes and goes. So I don't know if it's necessary to have to completely think about it as separate entities. Uh, to, to turn it into action, yes, you got contracts and other things you got to deal with, but at the inspiration level, no, I don't think so.
2: And even though they have different strategies, they have different businesses, and you're just one of their customers... Does that kind of reduce the amount of, because it's a loosely coupled relationship. And even if you have contracts and when there's uncertainty in the ecosystem or, or a larger macroeconomic environment, then I'm not saying they would just drop you and defect or, 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 or just kind of walk away, but still people are in that so-called self-preservation mode. Do you think that could be converted from self-preservation to a ecosystem preservation mode? So who um, takes the lead in
3: that case? no. No, I don't think you'll find any individual who'll say, we have to keep the ecosystem alive until there's only three people left. (laughs) I think the way the market works is it's self-interest that guides it, um, and then alignment of interest across enough parties to make a difference in the market. Um, And perhaps that's even true inside some companies. Uh, so no, it's it's hard for an ecosystem to really rally to each other, especially in times of competition, and uncertainty, and stress. That's rare.
2: One last I, question. As a
3: business person, I wouldn't plan on it.
2: So one last question, just uh, sixty seconds. If you, since you are the CIO, and and of course our listeners are many of them are CIOs, and they have to deal with uncertainty, and today more than ever, we know that business literally uses IT as a fabric. What do you think your playbook should read when it comes to dealing with uncertainty which you would like to share with your fellow IT leaders?
3: Yeah, I think my playbook is simple. We have to have maximum data technical integration that can combine the data needed to read and respond to the market appropriately. And then two, we have to have information sharing and decision-making processes to take the information and put it into action. The CIO role is half producing, bringing data together. The other half of it is getting it used across the board. It's often not talked about in the CIO role. It sounds like a chief knowledge officer, but to me it's, it's part of the CIO role. I'm very much concerned about information writ large and how it comes into the organization, how it disseminates through the organization, and how it gets used. And so we got to attend to both of those problems, the technical challenge of integration and the very human challenge of making use of the information appropriately.
2: On behalf of the show and our listeners, thank you so much, Vince, uh, for for sharing your insights and experience about how we can take advantage of uncertainty and move the business forward, leveraging IT and leveraging all other resources. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, please like us on Facebook, search for CTN. Uh, Be sure to follow us on Twitter and join our LinkedIn group. Thank you again for listening to this segment on CTN. This is Sanjog, all your talk show hosts. Till next week, take care and God bless.